welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Bronwyn Manby. Uh, I'm a um, visiting senior fellow here at the London School of Economics. Thank you very much for joining us today for this really interesting presentation of recent research around statelessness in the Middle East. Myself, I work on statelessness, but mainly not in the Middle East. So I'm personally going to be really interested to see what the uh, outcomes of findings on the ground have been. We have four excellent speakers. We are we have just observed to ourselves that we have an all-female panel without even trying, which we are extremely pleased about. Uh, so we have first the first speaker will be uh, Susan Akram, who directs the International Human Rights Clinic at Boston University School of Law. Uh, where she supervises students engaged in a range of international uh, advocacy. She's written extensively on uh, refugee, forced migration, human and civil rights issues, and especially in the Middle East, Arab and Muslim world. The next speaker will be Lina Abu Habib, who is the interim director of the Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. She teaches at AUB and is a board member for Gender at Work as well as the MENA, Middle East and North Africa, strategic advisor for the Global Fund for Women. Uh, she was previously the executive director of the Women's Learning Partnership and has several other important affiliations around uh, gender and citizenship, the economy, trade, and gender and leadership. Sahra Al-Balrazi is a human rights lawyer and activist working in the field of statelessness. She's co-director of the Syrian Legal Development Programme and her particular interests in which she has publications and research dating back several years are in statelessness in the Middle East and North Africa and the impact of statelessness and discriminatory nationality laws on women. And finally, uh, Maisa Ayoub is the Associate Director of the Center for Migration and Refugee Studies at the American University in Cairo. Over 15 years of research and teaching experience in migration and refugee studies and has published on asylum policies, livelihoods of refugees, public opinion and media attitudes towards refugees and immigrants. Each of our speakers will speak in that order for about seven or eight minutes. And then finally, we will have a question and answer for all of the speakers uh, at the final session. So please keep your uh, uh, questions until then. Uh, if you have questions, please type them in the Q&A box rather than in the chats screen and I will moderate the questions as we go. If you would particularly like to uh, make your questions in person, we might be able to accommodate that, but please type your questions. The event will be recorded and is also being live streamed on Facebook. There is interpretation available. I should have said this at first. If you would like to listen in Arabic and please click on the interpretation button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, and if you would like to tweet about the event, please use the hashtag LSE Middle East. Thank you very much. And without further ado, I will hand over to Susan for the first presentation. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, sabah al-khair, masa al-khair. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thank you to the Middle East uh, Center at LSE for hosting us uh, today. I want to give a short overview of the efforts to address the challenges of statelessness in the Middle East and North Africa region, the MENA region and the Boston University International Human Rights Clinic, IHRC's initiative to help develop a statelessness network across the region. UNHCR estimates that there are at least 10 million stateless persons around the world, but does not include stateless refugees or stateless Palestinians in that number. By at least one estimate, there are over one and a half million stateless refugees in addition to the current estimate of stateless persons. UNHCR statistics also show that in the Middle East and North Africa, there are almost 500,000 stateless persons under its mandate. Now the deficiencies in the data are significant. Stateless, uh, the Institute on Statelessness reports that there are four countries in the region with stateless populations numbering over 10,000 each, but others for which no numbers are available. In response to the UNHCR's I Belong campaign to reduce statelessness, civil society has developed regional networks to respond to the call to reduce statelessness by 2024. 
The MENA region, however, has yet to have an institutionalized civil society network on statelessness. I want to give a brief background to the BU project to support a regional network and what particular challenges implementing such a network faces in the MENA region. The IHRC project began in 2018 in Lebanon, using Lebanon as the first case study, highlighting the problems and common issues that might assist in establishing a non-discriminatory framework for the stateless network across the region that could include Palestinians and other vulnerable groups facing similar barriers to citizenship across the region. The aims of the project in partnership with organizations and individuals in the region are to research and complete a mapping report on statelessness in each country in which it is possible to conduct research. In the country reports, we're focusing on the main issues of statelessness, identifying common legal norms that can be used as a foundation for advocacy to address main causes and in doing so, help bring experts and activists together with governments to strategize to address main barriers to citizenship. We've so far completed research and held seven stakeholder workshops in or on Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt, and completed the reports on Lebanon and Jordan while the Egypt and Iraq reports are forthcoming. At the same time, spearheaded by one of our main partners, the Assam Ferris Institute at the American University in Beirut, where Lina Abu Habib is, we've been developing an online platform, which will be the main vehicle for compiling research, organizing events, and developing strategies for campaigns on specific aspects of statelessness. In terms of main challenges, there are three region-wide issues that must be addressed which Lina Abu Habib, Zahra Al-Barazi, and Maisa Ayub will be discussing in more detail. The first is the problem of gender discrimination and nationality laws in many countries of the region. Particularly in the Levant, nationality is passed on primarily through the bloodline and only fathers can pass their nationality on to their children. This is hugely problematic and leaves thousands, perhaps millions across the region without access to use sanguinous or blood citizenship. The second problem is the multiple barriers to and complex requirements for civil status documentation in each country. Lebanon in particular has multiple steps for registering children at birth, many of which are extremely difficult or onerous for large segments of both the Lebanese and migrant or refugee populations to complete. This has particularly negative effects on children's rights to a nationality. The third problem is barriers for long-term migrants or protracted refugee situations to obtain citizenship when they have either no right or ability to retain or obtain citizenship in their country of origin. This is an enormous problem across the region affecting millions of Palestinians, Iraqis, Afghanis, Syrians, Kurds and Sahrawi, among others. The issue of Palestinians is of course a major and over 70 year stateless problem with both extremely complex legal and political roots that has legal and political barriers to resolving or even ameliorating across the region. The MENA legal context itself presents different challenges. Many if not most of the Arab states are not parties to the Refugee Convention or Protocol, or the two conventions addressing statelessness. This has meant that our strategies have to focus on regional alternative agreements and norms to build a legal foundation to address statelessness. The Arab states have particular and frankly legitimate reasons for not ratifying the refugee and stateless treaties, which primarily has to do with the Palestinian issue. However, in the alternative of all international treaties, we've focused our efforts on Arab regional instruments, including the Islamic Child Rights Covenant, the Casablanca Protocol, the Arab Charter, and a series of important League of Arab States resolutions. In the North Africa region, there are additional instruments that ground rights to nationality, women's and children's rights that are important additional foundations for the campaign to address statelessness in the region. I will stop here 
to allow my fellow panelists to describe each of the main issues in turn, and I'm happy to answer questions at the end. Thank you very much, Susan. Um, exemplary time observation. Thank you for that. And thank you for setting us up for this discussion of the effort to develop a genuinely regional engagement on this issue, uh, rather than to see it only framed at the, at the international level. I'll hand over now to Lina Abu Habib, who will talk especially about uh, gender discrimination in nationality laws. Thank you, Brown, and thank you uh, so much. And it's such a pleasure also to see again uh, Susan after uh, after all these years. And I remember fondly the conversations we had in Beirut about this issue. Um, and you're quite right. My entry point, or actually the whole framing of uh, the comments I'm, I'm going to make is around um, gender equality. Um, of course, it's uh, it's no surprise if I say that, you know, the MENA region truly, despite, despite the fact that it's uneven, but it truly falls behind, lags behind in terms of all indicators related to gender inequality. And over the past 10 years, there's been also um, a, a, a pushback in whatever minor advances we've had before 2010 in terms of education, health. I mean, and as I said, minor advances. So our entry point has not been statelessness per se, uh, as per the definition of statelessness, but actually uh, um, in terms of the various parameters of gender inequalities in the law, We've, we have several, but actually when we started this work on um, uh, uh, rev reviewing and reforming family laws, uh, I'm sorry, uh, nationality laws, all Arab countries, uh, I don't say Arab from a national perspective, I say Arab because we share the language, but it doesn't mean, you know, that's the only, but I'm, I'm, I, I need to be clear about this. It's not from a national, national perspective or anything. Um, all these countries in the region shared the same form of discrimination in nationality laws. And one wonders why. Why is uh, such a clear form of discrimination codified, maintained, and so strong in most, most countries of, of the region? And one way that we've been able to identify the root causes was basically that's really, that this really stems from the perspective of a patriarchal society, of a patriarchal system, of a patriarchal regime, where actually women do get penalized if they decide to get out of, the, of their tribe, to, 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 uh, um, to challenge tri tribal rules. But let's leave this, let's leave this uh, uh, aside. And let me come back to you know, the whole concept of what citizenship means in the region. And can we, um, can we actually talk about um, um, the fundamental concept of a citizenship where there is a clear relationship with the state between any citizen and the state where there's a clear line of responsibility. And surely, I mean, as somebody who's lived in this region and worked in this region for most of my life, um, I will allow myself to say that the concept and practice of citizenship, the way we, with, we, we know it is um, at, you know, at the very least, we cannot talk about a, of a concept of equal citizenship. And actually, if I wanted to be radical, I would say it's inexistent. The whole idea of being a citizen, a citizen actually does not, does not exist. What we do have, however, is a relation of subjects. And for women, this is doubly oppressive because women are not even subjects of the state, but they are subject of the family, of the patriarchal family. So they, they are in this bounded relationship with the family structure, the family as it is defined in a, um, uh, in a patriarchal system, a heteronormative family with the head of the family being a male, etc. So, so and, and then that particular family is also the subject of, of the state. So the different layers of, of oppressions which totally undermine what we understand by, 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 by the whole concept of citizenship. And also, I mean, if you look at the last 10 years, particularly since the start of the Syria uh, uh, war, um, this, even this, the, the, the framework of citizenship is being used against us because it's being used as another layer of discrimination because now you can use it to actually discriminate between citizens and residents. Again, another layer of, 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 uh, of discrimination and think about the, the, you know, the women, think about the particular gendered uh, uh, impact on, on women, especially women who are non-citizens, 
residents, refugees, etc. Fine. So we start and then we have a whole region that has discriminatory nationality laws. And then it, during a period of, I would say from 2005 until 2010, there was this um, uh, amazing, actually a domino effect of various countries in the region actually recognizing uh, injustice in nationality laws and secondly, doing something about it. And of course, doing something about it has been incredibly uneven amongst the, 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 the countries in the regions that have um, that have changed their laws from a perfect uh, equal new uh, nationality law, such as the case of Algeria, to some sort of really weird high, you know, um, very nebulous system, which is that of uh, uh, Saudi Saudi Arabia. But nevertheless, we've had a period of five years where there was a rapid change in several countries. Uh, and at least for us as, as feminist activists, this was a, a, a breakthrough. Where, where are we now in terms of nationality laws and gender inequality? We do have four countries in the region that have been and remain immune to any kind of reform leading to gender equality. And I will cite my own country, Lebanon, Jordan, Bahrain, and Syria, for different reasons that um, uh, Susan touched uh, upon several of them. But let me circle, circle back to uh, what is it? What is it that uh, regimes, and I purposely call them regimes, what is it that regimes invoke uh, uh, to, to, to stop, to abort any attempt to reform nationality laws, despite actually having been reprimanded by the international community several times over to review these laws. Well, one is uh, um, religious considerations, uh, which are, you know, um, um, which, which manifest themselves in different ways in different countries. So religious considerations in Lebanon manifest themselves in the fear, the provoked fear of uh, uh, Muslims outnumbering Christians. In a country like Bahrain, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's again, uh, the fear of Shias outnumbering uh, Muslims. Another layer is ethnic, uh, provoked ethnic fears. The Kurds outnumbering the, the Arabs in, in, uh, uh, in, 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 in Syria. And then of course, the, 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 I circle back to what Suzanne said, um, the whole fear of Palestinians, and I think um, this fear is very much uh, is it's, thank you, bro. Is very much provoked by the fact that uh, um, not provoked, but actually influenced by let's admit it, our collective racism vis-a-vis vis-a-vis uh, vis Palestinian, you know, the collected hatred vis-a-vis -vis Palestinian refugees, or vis-a-vis -vis any refugees, or vis-a-vis -vis any person from the from the from the south. So, so just to just to conclude, and I'm sorry, Brennan, uh, I took I took more time. All of these things are at play. All these considerations at, are, are at play. But our you know conversations with uh, decision makers, as bad as they are, and our conversations with women for the last 15 years on the subject have actually shown two things. One, women, um, uh, the lived experiences of women as a result of uh, being excluded from benefiting from the same rights to, to confer nationality, the lived experiences are completely different as women. I'll talk about this later during the, the QA. The second thing is at the end of the day, most of our regimes in the region couldn't care less about gender equal uh, gender equal laws. The the desire uh, the desire to be in a society that is egalitarian that is inclusive simply does not uh, exist. Um, I'll stop here and then we can come back to this in the Q and A. If you want to, thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating. Uh, tour of the reasons of for uh, gender discrimination, which I think will, uh, I'm sure will provoke a lot of questions. And a reminder to people, please put your questions in the Q&A box and we'll pick them up at the end of, of all four presentations. I'll hand over to Zahra Al-Barazi, who will talk about the challenges related to civil registration. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Bronwyn. And it's a real pleasure, pleasure to be part of this discussion. Uh, I'm going to focus in on the issue of civil registration, uh, and this is an issue that we talk about a lot when we talk about statelessness, uh, especially in the region. And that's because, quite simply, uh, what happens is your birth certificate, uh, having your birth registered, means that 
we have some formal legal proof of who a baby's father is, who a baby's mother is, where it was born, when it was born, all these types of details, which really identifies and indicates what nationality this child should have. So not getting this birth uh, certificate and not getting your birth registered, which happens often in the region, um, may mean that the child is at risk of statelessness. And we also focus a lot on marriage uh, registration because in many countries across the region, having a marriage certificate is something that you need and, and able for you to register the birth of your child. So this is why we always have to talk about marriage certificates, even though it doesn't seem a, a, a relevant issue, because you need that to prove who your father is, to prove who your mother is, and also to register even the birth of your child. Um, unfortunately, there are a multitude of problems with regards to access to civil registration uh, across the region. What I'm going to do is focus on two countries that we've recently looked at in this project, um, that of Iraq and um, Jordan. Uh, and to look a little bit, I'm going to focus on two examples. There are many, many other examples, uh, unfortunately, that uh, we could have looked at. But I'm going to focus on two examples of how the recent conflict uh, in these regions have led to problems with individuals who are displaced or refugees in terms of accessing their uh, civil registration. And I'm also going to zoom in even further and look at how there's actually these two examples show also a gender issue. So as, long, as well as having gender discrimination in the nationality law, where a woman can't give her nationality to her children, there are all sorts of other multitudes of problems uh, where women are unable uh, to, for one reason or another, ensure that ch their child has access to, to a nationality. So the first one, the first example I'm going to give is that of Iraq. Uh, Iraq, unfortunately, has been through so much conflict, uh, and we're talking about millions of IDPs. Um, and the civil registration procedure in Iraq is already very complicated because each uh, governance, uh, each part, it's not a federal system, have their own system, follow their own procedures, follow their own laws. So we're already quite a complicated procedure for an IDP who's in a different, who lives in a different area from where they come from to be able to navigate. Um, in terms of IDPs or individuals who are living under in the conflict under ISIS-controlled areas, the situation becomes even more complicated. There often uh, ISIS, uh, ISIS confiscated documents. Uh, they considered uh, government documents invalid uh, and replaced them with ISIS documents. So a family who had documents suddenly had their documents confiscated and now they had new ISIS documents. And then with the fall of ISIS, their ISIS documents were not seen invalid uh, by the Iraqi government. So they were thrown around by the different governing systems that were ruling them in terms of what documents they could and couldn't use. This makes things even more complicated, the pre-ISIS area, if you are a woman um, and have problems with uh, proving the identity of the father or the whereabouts of the father. So in theory, you should be able to register the child as a woman in Iraq. But in practice, if you happen to live uh, under ISIS um, and you want to obtain a birth certificate for a child whose father is missing, the woman must prove the identity and the whereabouts of the father because he might be suspected to be a member of ISIS. Uh, so you must be able to prove a, uh, to have a marriage certificate, prove marriage, etc. And this suspicion, first of all, it, it completely rids the woman of a lack of agency of not being part of this ideology, whether or, or not her, her husband has been proven to be a member of ISIS or not. Um, but it means that uh, being linked to this ideology of a husband um, affects you being able to give your child a birth certificate. Because um, if you do uh, prove who the father is and he is seen to be a member of ISIS, having your um, documents renewed, reissued or updated is not possible when a male relative is included in the national security database or sort of the wanted list um, of ISIS persons. So you're just unable to go through that process. The only way you could go through that process um, is to go through something we call, they, they call the Tabria process, where you go to the courts and in front of a judge, you file a criminal complaint against uh, this relative. And that this is what this relative did. And I you know, do not no, no longer want to belong uh, as a family member of this relative. You have to go through this whole process uh, to distinguish yourselves from your husband, which is a complicated process, which is a time consuming process in order for you to get your child 
registered at birth and your child a birth certificate in order to, for you to ensure that your child does not become stateless in the future. So as you can imagine, there are huge complications uh, surrounding this, which may mean that many children are at risk of becoming statelessness from these families. Uh, it is a complicated process and is often also quite a, I guess, a shameful process um, to go through. Uh, so you, we will have children who are being left unregistered because of conflict, displacement uh, and discrimination in terms of access to, to civil registration. Another quick example that I want to go through is that of, of Jordan. Um, so in Jordan, of course, uh, they've had an, a massive influx of Syrian refugees. Um, and here again, uh, problems surrounding uh, discrimination and, 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 and exclusion of women um, and abuse of women ultimately uh, has leading to statelessness and leading to lack of access to civil registration. And that is the issue that you know, we saw a lot in Jordan of child marriage, uh, women or girls ultimately marrying at a very young age. Um, so the UNFPA have stated that about 35% of Syrian refugee girls are married before the age of 18. There aren't particularly recent figures in Jordan, but in 2014, UNICEF um, stated that about a third <clears throat> of registered marriages uh, were, were with girls under the age of 18. So in Jordan, officially, the minimum age of marriage is 18. Uh, but you can marry younger without permission, with permission, but most people don't. It becomes informal uh, when you marry. So you haven't registered your marriage. Um, this could be for many reasons, because you can't get judicial consent for a child marriage. Um, and if a husband is found out that he married a, a young bride in Jordan, he, he may be punished by the authorities. So it's hidden. If you don't have a, a, or maybe you don't even know who the husband is, or the husband married the woman and then left because they, you know, they only came for a temporary amount of time. So there are many, many, many situations where women are left without uh, a wedding certificate, a marriage certificate. Because of that, they won't necessarily be able to go and register the, the births of their children, and they won't be able to get uh, certificates for their child. They won't be able to prove who the father is. And of course, Syrian nationality law being discriminatory against women, not being able to prove who the father is in and of itself will mean that the child will be born stateless. So those are just two examples, child marriage in, in Jordan and uh, problems of, of people who were born in, in ISIS controlled areas in Iraq, of women who are unable to ensure the registration, the births of their children, the births being the children being left without birth certificates and being at risk of statelessness, being at risk without to, to be without nationality in the future. Um, I had a couple, do I have, do I have a minute or two? One minute, very quickly. I mean, there are a couple of things. I'm just trying to think of some of the kind of regional attempts of, of, of what's going on uh, in order to try and resolve some of these issues, at least address some of these issues, trying to put them on the agenda. As Lena said, I mean, there isn't massive amounts that we can see in terms of, of, of regimes. Uh, being really involved. I think two things that we should be looking on legal identity and very recently uh, an action plan that came along with that. Uh, very relevant to what I just spoke about, objective one of the action plan was to ensure universal birth registration and objective two to ensure gender equality. Uh, Bronwyn has stopped me there, um, so I'll, I'll leave it as, the, as those two examples of many, many other examples in the region where accessing civil registration is problematic, leaving many children at risk, uh, especially because of displacement and conflict uh, of statelessness. Thank you very much, Zahra, and uh, I will now hand over to Maisa Ayub of uh, uh, American University Cairo to talk about the particular situation of refugees and long-term migrants. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so, yeah, I will focus on also civil registration in Egypt uh, with regard to migrants and refugees. Um, it's um, it's a, re a project that we carried out with the uh, Middle East Study Center of uh, LSE. And there were two phases to the project. The first phase uh, was a research attempt to understand um, what is the challenges that migrant and refugee face uh, to register uh, their children, uh, um, to issue birth certificate for their children in Egypt. And um, 
basically um, the problem is that in many cases the migrant and refugees are unaware of the procedure so for example it is required by the nationality law in egypt that a child must be registered within the first 15 days of his or her birth so if you fail to register a child uh, in during this period you still can register him or her but it is a much longer uh, process and very much complicated and then uh, in addition uh, to the to this limitation there is also uh, certain requirements like uh, zahra mentioned uh, it's essential to have uh, a certified marriage certificate um, uh, and it is uh, also uh, essential to have a valid passport with valid residence or a valid UNSCR card with valid residence. So uh, in this case, um, irregular migrants who don't uh, have residence in Egypt, as well as rejected asylum seekers have really um, uh, under, uh, their children are under the risk of being stateless. Uh, in addition to that, even uh, those who are registered with UNSCR and have valid uh, residency, uh, the problem is the marriage certificate. Now, um, the requirement of uh, registering marriage in Egypt uh, is that, uh, for foreigners, is that they have to get a letter of attestation from their embassies and take this letter to uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to be authenticized. And then after it, it is authenticized, they have to take it to the Ministry of um, Interior for, uh, sorry, the Ministry of Justice for uh, to be certified. So it's a very long process. Um, and the real problem is this letter of attestation from uh, the embassy, because refugees and asylum seekers are uh, individuals who fled their countries of origin. And uh, for them, it is very problematic to uh, get in touch with their embassies, that the embassies of the countries uh, from which they fled, and also it jeopardizes their uh, case with the UNHCR because they are approaching their embassy. So um, one way that has been suggested by some uh, lawyers and uh, legal aid uh, uh, projects in Egypt is uh, uh, is for the refugees and asylum seekers to actually uh, initiate a lawsuit at uh, the uh, family courts of Egypt in order to uh, register their marriages. Um, initiating a lawsuit uh, at the family court is basically an avenue that uh, Egyptian women would resort to in case the husband uh, is claiming that the marriage did not take place. So when there is a Orfi document, Orfi is unreg unregistered marriage uh, uh, document between uh, um, a male and a female. Um, and uh, the, the man claimed that, and then they have a child and the man claimed that this uh, marriage did not take place. One way is to initiate a lawsuit to uh, register the marriage. Uh, so basically, when the migrants and refugees resort to this um, option, they are pretending as if the wife is uh, initiating a lawsuit against the husband. The problem is that uh, uh, it is not always successful because some judges would not uh, allow this uh, because it's clearly a way to navigate the law of registering marriages in, uh, of foreigners. And then the more serious problem is that it's only an option that is available to those who are registered with UNSCR because the family court accept UNSCR card and do not ask for a passport and, and they don't ask for a letter from the embassy. But if you're not registered with UNSCR, then uh, this is not possible. Uh, another uh, problem is that, as I mentioned, uh, you need to have uh, the refugee and, and, and asylum seeker, they need to have a valid UNSCR card with resident with valid residence permit. Uh, the UNSCR card for uh, asylum seeker is valid for 18 months, and the, the UNSCR card for refugees is valid for 36 months. However, the Ministry of Interior in Egypt requires that all asylum seekers and refugees to renew their um, residency every six months, even if the cards are valid. It's a very long process to renew uh, residency. So by the time they renew, it's time to, uh, to renew it again. So many, we have uh, met cases of asylum seekers and refugees who would forego to start with the process of renewing uh, the residency and they would stay only 
uh, with the UNICEF art card in Egypt, of course, this put them at the risk of being uh, questioned by the police and possibly detained. Um, and of course, it's another challenge to issuing a birth certificate. Um, we have not quantified during the research project, we had not quantified the number of uh, asylum seekers and refugees who are unable to, to issue a birth certificate for the children. However, uh, we came across many because it wasn't a quantitative study, um, uh, but we came across many cases of, uh, of refugees and asylum seekers who were unable uh, to, to register, uh, to, to issue birth certificate. And the reasons that they provided for their inability to do so, uh, the first uh, is the unawareness of the 15 day time limit. The second is the unawareness of the document required. So either they are unaware that they should register the children after 15 days, so they go after the 15 days and then it becomes a very long process, or they go and they realize that there are a number of documents that need to be provided, including the marriage certificate and there are, it's, a, it's another process of issuing it. Or uh, they um, are unable to issue an, uh, a marriage certificate because they don't want to approach the embassies out of fear, or, and they are not aware of the option of the family court. And in the cases of single mothers, and uh, a mother could be single because the father disappeared the fa or the father died and she doesn't have a, birth, a marriage certificate or a, a, a death certificate, or because she was raped. Uh, and there are cases of uh, particularly African women who were raped by smugglers and um, they couldn't uh, issue birth certificate for children born in Egypt. According to the Egyptian uh, law, um, you can uh, a, a person, uh, a woman who is raped, could can by in theory issue a birth certificate, but in practice, it's extremely uh, a long process, and it's impossible to um, to accomplish without a lawyer and without a UNICEF. So in, in an attempt to help reduce this risk of statelessness, the second phase of the project uh, was designed as an awareness raising campaign where we organized a number of community sessions with the different communities, refugee communities, and we focused on five communities, the Syrian, the Sudanese, South Sudanese, Eritrean, and Ethiopian. Uh, we did uh, around 20, uh, 22 uh, community sessions uh, with the different communities to explain to them the process of uh, registering birth uh, in Egypt, as well as um, uh, the other required document. Uh, following that, we produced uh, brochures in the different languages of the community explaining the process. And, we, uh, uh, and finally, we produced a number of videos uh, that explain the process and it, should be, uh, and it will be uploaded on the Facebook and website of our center. Uh, I will stop here and looking forward to questions. Thank you very much, Maisa. And that's a fantastic collection of presentations that gives us a picture of what the problems are around the region. Please do add your questions to the Q&A box. We've got some very large questions here, but I'm going to start with some of the more specific ones, and maybe we can get to the, the very big picture later. Uh, the first one I'd like to pick on the first question asked by Waisidak, apology for pronunciation. Um, so why do, what is the problem of, of mainly confining the concept of statelessness to Palestinians in the Middle Eastern region? And it's often my uh, experience when you discuss with a random person from the Middle East and you say, I work on statelessness, they just assume that you mean the Palestinians because that's what statelessness is. Maybe they'll include the Bedoun of the Gulf but what we've been hearing here, of course, is it's a much broader issue. So how do we, maybe you can, any of you can reflect on the process of getting people to understand that this is a much broader question than the Palestinians, the Badoon, maybe Western Sahara, if they, people go that West, possibly the Kurds in Syria, but actually it's a pervasive problem that goes across the region. Uh, maybe Susan, you'd like to start on that. Uh, yes, I'll start briefly um, and then let my fellow panelists chip in. Um, uh, I, that is really part of the aim of our country mapping research, to identify all of the vulnerable or the major vulnerable populations and some of the minor ones as well, 
uh, but also breaking down this notion that this is just about migrants and refugees, that this is also very much about national populations. And we've even struggled with the terminology uh, that is in Lebanon, our uh, partners have come up with the term unperfected citizenship. That term has been unacceptable in Jordan where the term rather is undocumented nationality because unperfected citizenship is an unacceptable concept. So even in terms of finding the right terminology that can be used to help ground the strategies around the different populations that are either stateless or at risk of statelessness uh, has been a challenge. Uh, but very much this is what our mapping reports are designed to do. Sorry, Zahra, I think I saw you unmute briefly. Would you like to come in on that? Yeah, I, th I think it's a really interesting question because it really, it really speaks to the heart of the problem. So not just with regards to Palestinians, but I think more generally, framing the issue regionally, even before we talk about what other people say or internationally, has been quite complicated. Um, each sub-region, each country has their own way of, of, of talking about the issue, has their own word semantic for the issue. Um, people don't necessarily, different communities don't necessarily see that other stateless communities have um, similar issues to them. That kind of really embeds things in kind of the challenges and the politics and doesn't bring things beyond that. To, this is a right to nationality. Um, I think this is this is one of the, the challenges in trying to unify and, 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 and create solidarity between different stateless communities is this is a statelessness issue with it or, of course, with its specific contextual um, things. Um, and often these different groups, statelessness rarely comes on its own. These different groups are facing similar types of discrimination and exclusion. And, you know, statelessness comes with all sorts of other issues um, of wanting to, 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 to exclude certain groups, certain ethnicities, certain religions, to discriminate against women. So these are all things that all these groups often suffer from together. And a consequence of it is statelessness. And I think trying to, trying to, trying to get that message across um, regionally first, even sometimes in the same country, there are different stateless groups that, you know, don't necessarily feel as a sense of solidarity um, is, 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 I think, a real big step that uh, we all need to try and take together. Thanks. Lena, come to you. Uh, no, I just want to very briefly, I might depart from the assumption that now, in current days, that statelessness is now immediately associated with uh, with um, with Palestinians. I think um, with what happened in the region, with the increase of internal and also external, you know, movement of different people, uh, and and particularly uh, Bronan with the uh, Syrian displaced Syrian population, many from the opposition without any papers. I think no, we're. I do not think from where I am that statelessness is particularly linked or totally linked to uh, uh, to refugees. And then the second point, which, you know, we really have to acknowledge is we come from a, a, um, a context that has a very, very poor culture of human rights, um, very poor. And if you venture to be a spokesperson or definitely not a women human rights defender, you know, they're rotting in jail all around us. So, the, 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 you know, we have to admit it. We, we, we have a poor track record of human rights. And so definitely when it comes to people uh, who are stateless, then, you know, so too bad. Thanks for that input. Um, Maisa, I don't know if you want to reflect on, because the research project you were working on was specifically about the situation of long-term refugees and, and migrants in Egypt and their children. But how, I mean, how does the politics of that or the awareness of that so that statelessness simply seen as a problem for those populations or do people have an understanding that it, it actually also impacts uh, Egyptians and perhaps also this interaction with the specific question of the Palestinians as well? Um, you mean the public awareness? Public awareness and official awareness, yeah. Uh, public awareness, I think there is not enough public awareness about the I mean, there is public awareness that uh, uh, it, statelessness could, I mean, refugees and migrants could be at, le uh, uh, at the risk of being stateless. 
uh, but there is no public awareness about other group of, uh, of people, particularly uh, Egyptians. Yeah. Uh, official awareness, there is, uh, I believe there is awareness, but there is um, lack of, uh, there is no political will or, uh, to discuss these kind of issues uh, openly. Yeah. I believe, and Susan is, I think, aware of that, that uh, in, also in Jordan, uh, but Egypt is the same. So given those responses, I'm going to pick up on a question from Thomas McGee about the transnational, supranational efforts to organize, especially around gender discrimination, but also maybe reflect more generally about regional organization around the right to a nationality and around statelessness. But starting with you, Lena, about what are the efforts beyond national borders to organize on gender discrimination in particular, but maybe more generally as well? Sure, uh, and I really like this question because, um, you know, if there has been any change, um, or at least the changes that I've talked about that have happened in uh, uh, in nationality laws across the region, they have they have happened as a result of two things. One, in terms of civil society organizing, and when I say civil society, I want to be very specific. It's feminist civil society. This has not been on the agenda of the mainstream, neither the mainstream uh, uh, um, uh, opposition, whatever, with, it, with all its diversity, or the mainstream human rights sector. This has been a particular issue that has been pushed and pushed and pushed for years uh, by feminist organizations. Uh, the feature of this uh, uh, feminist organizing was that it was, you know, two things. One, that it was cross-regional, uh, across boundaries, and I think, you know, uh, with uh, with Zahra, we'll be contributing with a friend of mine, with a colleague, a chapter on the Lebanon uh, situation. Um, but the cross boundary has been the cross country has been really impressive and i want to give you one example very very quickly you know when egypt changed its laws and it was the first in, in 2004 egypt changed its laws but did not but of course but uh, excluded two two important uh, uh, communities one everybody who was in this situation before the law so it was the law was only uh, applicable without a retroactive effect and secondly it's excluded spouses male spouses so one of the things that the colleagues the feminist colleagues in 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 morocco did was they lobbied based on what happened in egypt they lobbied for the two, these two things not to happen and they won on one front. They got the retroactive effect, but they didn't get the spouse because, of course, all our regimes can, you know, can can say that everything is a threat to national to national sovereignty. So, you know, I I, I really want to emphasize that the only persistent uh, uh, um, work on the ground that has involved women themselves in this situation has been collective. Uh, regional, but also global. I mean, we took this thing to the UPR, to the Universal per Periodical Review of Human Rights. We took this to the CSW, to the Commission on the Status of Women. We took this everywhere that it could be taken. The reason why you see in the UPR concluding remarks for our countries or the CEDO committee, the reports that have been submitted to, the, to, to CEDO, the only reason why you see our countries reprimanded is because we went to every single, uh, we went to every single embassy and 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 lobbied them and told them what they what to ask you know how to chance to challenge our governments so you know maybe this goes sometimes this story remains untold uh, and it's a problem and i'm hoping with in zahra's volume we'll be able to tell this story uh, but this is effectively what has been happening civil society feminist organizing when when you're on mute again sorry <laughs> Zahra, that's, I keep on clicking it and it doesn't respond. Um, that's an opportunity for you to plug your forthcoming publication, but also maybe reflect a bit on the, net, the network building aspect that, that Susan already touched on in her introduction about trying to build those regional uh, interactions. I think one of the one of the really unique um, things about about the region, um, I think Lena's already kind of slightly uh, spoke about it, is that a lot of the act, this, this issue isn't new. Uh, it's as old as the states are in in, in the region, um, and a lot of the activism and a lot of the attempts to try and challenge statelessness issues have really come from the communities themselves. 
um, you see across the region, there are very few um, formal kind of uh, and long established NGOs. There are some, I don't want to undermine them at all. There are some, but the majority of work and activism and the attempt to raise public awareness and, and bring things to the forefront are by feminists, are by people from the Bedouin community, are by those who've been stripped of their nationality in Bahrain, are by refugees who are trying to, to get uh, um, uh, uh, things for their children. Uh, documents for their children. So it really has come from the community and, 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 and individuals and activists and, and hard workers. Um, so that's a real, I think, unique thing from this region because there isn't any interest really um, outside uh, from the regimes, from kind of more regional uh, bodies or anything. So, I mean, so that's a really strong point. Uh, there's also some initiatives that I think are, are, are really important. The initiative that, that Lena's a part of, uh, with regards to gender discrimination and nationality law, um, the Hawiati, which are a group of uh, organizations and individuals mostly who, who have come from uh, across the region together to try and build an umbrella of, of stateless people, to build this kind of solidarity that I was talking about before of stateless people from across the Middle East and North Africa, um, the Hawiati network. And so there's different initiatives that, 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 that do exist. Um, that are trying to kind of bring this issue forward. And it really has been mostly the, the communities and the groups themselves over the past several decades that, that have pushed this issue. Um, I think that's a really important kind of point to underline and, and highlight. Thank you. Um, and just to mention also that you are coordinating with others a, a project to pull together some, some research uh, on, and so watch this space uh, about, there, there will be a publication to, by AUC uh, on some of these issues. Susan, can I ask you to come in, building on this discussion about trans-regional organisation, to think about the regional legal regime and the and, and efforts and possibilities of strengthening the regional regime, given the tension between the region and the international regime here? Yes, uh, a big part of the contribution that we're trying to make uh, through our project is to develop these uh, region-wide Arab agreements as the legal foundation for strategies and campaigns. Uh, and the, uh, around each one of the, the legal clusters or legal issues that I, I mentioned, and of course there are many sub-issues, but we have been developing this Arab-grounded legal framework so that when our reports are done, they are useful for all of the campaigners and stakeholders and strategists to be able to take that legal analysis and uh, Arab grounded legal framework to do exactly what uh, Lina has indicated has been so successful, well successful to a point, uh, that is taking these challenges to the UN mechanisms, to the human rights mechanisms, and to the regional mechanisms like the African regional uh, human rights mechanisms. So that's the idea of the uh, a main part of the mapping work that we're doing. And I can just give a very simple example, developing uh, recommendations around dual nationality recognition and residency rights. And in order to do that, we are looking uh, deeply at the Casablanca Protocol uh, for Palestinians, but also a host of legal Arab states resolutions. We are using treaty interpretation to harmonize the international standards with the regional instruments as a way to develop uh, a foundation for uh, proposals around dual nationality. Uh, and residency rights to reduce statelessness. So these are just a couple of the ideas. Of course, each one of our reports has carefully developed recommendations that are both country specific and also to be uh, consistent with region-wide recommendations. And if there is, I'm going to come to each of the panelists uh, just in our last five minutes. Um, as I'm afraid I'm not going to get to all of the questions, but we've had a rich discussion. If there's one recommendation that you would choose, uh, there's a question in the in the in the Q and A here about specifically relating to family codes, reform of family codes. But if there's one recommendation that you would choose out of the various interventions that you're making, what would it be? Um, I'll start with you, Misa, first, and then finish up with Susan. Okay. 
Uh, I mean, in terms of the research, um, what was really obvious is those, the most vulnerable are the rejected asylum seekers, uh, because once a, a, an asylum seeker application is rejected, he's no longer protected by UNHCR. Uh, and is considered irregular migrants. So both the, the rejected and those who come to Egypt and couldn't regularize their stay and are labor migrants, these are the most vulnerable two groups. And I think something must be done to protect these categories. And uh, I think this is the most important aspect. Of Thank you very much. Uh, Lina, what would be your top recommendation if you were going to pick one? You know, I'm a great, uh, so far, I might change later, but I'm, a, I'm still a believer in multilateralism and in the role of the international community. I would really want uh, international treaties, uh, human rights treaties, uh, uh, recommendations, not recommendations, you know, uh, reprimands by CEDO Commission and UPR Commission to have teeth, you know, rather than um, just, you know, a, a slap on the hand. Um, you know, I think the international community has different ways of imposing sanctions when it shouldn't be and all of this. So the tools are there, except that they are misused and they're never used um, to, uh, uh, to make human rights, uh, particularly nationality rights, a, a reality. You're going for the big picture here. You want the entire UN human rights system to be given teeth. That's no no messing about. Just straight no, into the no. top level. We're, we're trying the small stuff and it's not enough. So anyway. Although I think it is interesting, the contrast between the Middle East and North Africa. I mean, North Africa falls under the African Union and the African Union has a very clear position on gender equality, although the protocol on the rights to women is a little problematic. But nonetheless, I think it's significant that the North African states have much more gender equality in that one can say that actually the regional mechanisms may have had an impact there. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Um, two answers. The utopian one first um, is that I really think, and some, of, some countries do have this, they're just not implementing it, to have that safeguard that any child born in the country, doesn't matter who, where, what, why, any child born in the country who does not obtain any other nationality gets the nationality of the country that they were born in, they were born in or found in. If we were able to have that, that would you know, intergenerationally resolve the issue in the future. Um, to have that, I think, would, would be a, an incredible, even if one country could adopt that or at least implement it, because many countries have it. From a, from a more realistic point of view, for now at least, um, I really think there needs to be more effort in um, giving much more space to many of the groups. So many of these groups are really well organized. You've got some fantastic groups in Libya who, who are stateless or that I've recently you know, been in touch with who are incredibly well organized, doing wonderful stuff. There is rarely give, space given to them though, um, in terms of uh, like more regional, more international platforms, uh, more capacity, et cetera, for the work that they're doing. So space for those organizations, those communities, um, those, the, those initiatives uh, is something I think needs to, that, that can be done um, very quickly as well. So building on the on that regional and national organizations and empowering them. And Susan, I'll finish with you. Uh, have you any, any final words on the project, any final words on the project as well? Uh, yes, and like uh, like Zahra, I'm going to cheat and have two, one utopian and one uh, I think quite uh, practical. And the first is to implement a stateless status determination across the region for all uh, displaced populations. Uh, and that's particularly problematic in a region where we have two UN agencies, UNRWA and UNHCR, and the relationship between them is not quite clear. Palestinians, of course, fall through the cracks. But the second is for the Palestinians, there has to be a resolution between the tension, uh, the tension between the unwillingness of the Arab states and the Palestinian people to define them as stateless. And the fact that from an international law perspective, they clearly fall under the customary international law definition of stateless persons. My recommendation that we are developing in each uh, report is to implement fully the Casablanca Protocol uh, because under Casablanca, signatory states, including Jordan and Lebanon, agree that Palestinians retain their Palestinian nationality while they reside in the Arab host states. And Casablanca, in essence, acknowledges 
that in the absence of Palestinians being able to secure effective nationality from their country of origin, the Arab host states must provide alternative protection. And that could be citizenship because citizenship is not, uh, citizenship in one country is not inconsistent with nationality from the country of origin. Thank you very much. Uh, that brings us to the close of our hour. Thank very much to our uh, panelists. So it's been a really interesting set of presentations and discussion. Thank you to those of you who have attended. I'm sorry I couldn't get to absolutely all of the questions, uh, but I hope we had an interesting discussion and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next uh, Middle East Center event.